Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's go to the Lord. Father, what a joy, what a privilege to stand before your people, to stand over the word, and to gather with the saints. Lord, in next 30, 40 minutes, I pray you would guide me as I lead your people and guide hearts as we hear from you through your word. Holy Spirit, show us places in our hearts and in our lives where we need to surrender more to you. Show us not just places, Lord, show us people whom we need to love more. And God, I pray this church, whom I do love, would continue to be built up and shaped and formed and molded into the image of Christ, that they would be a church known with a persevering love as we see in this text. God, what we know not, please teach us what we are not. Please make us what we have not. Lord, please give us by your Spirit, through your Word, in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is a joy to be with you. As Dustin said, I do love you guys. I know you might say, I've never even seen you, but I love your pastors. When I moved here, uh, we were visiting here from the East Coast to move here in 2016. We started visiting. I was quickly told that if you're going to do ministry in La Mesa area in San Diego, you need to know about Del Cerro Church and get to know this church. So very grateful for your ongoing witness in our community and the joy of being able to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, Dustin texted me this morning and said, I'm, I'm praying for you this evening as you start worship. I'm sure there's a little time zone difference there from where he's at. And me and my wife, uh, my wife joining me today. We have four kids. We left all four of our kids at the hill this morning. So we are on a somewhat of a date after church here. So don't tell anybody what time we get out. All right. At the beginning of this year, my family was able to purchase a home here in La Mesa. We're really excited about that. And given the kind of the state of the housing market in San Diego, we knew we were going to be in the market for a fixer-upper. Um, and by God's grace, we were able to purchase the home that we had been able to rent for the past few years, which was, we were glad because we knew the home well. Uh, we knew that it was a good home. We knew that every square inch of it needed to be renovated. And we knew that I didn't have the money to pay someone to do it. So in my spare time since 20, the start of this year, I've been kind of learning how to remodel a 60-year-old home. And in doing any construction work, uh, there is what's referred to as uh, rough work and finish work. Rough work is typically what's behind the walls, what you don't see with your eyes. And finished work is typically what you do see, the things that are beautiful and the things that you want to look at. And, and though they are different, the finished work is dependent upon the rough work in every way. If the rough work is not done well, the finished work suffers. In construction, the beauty and 
of the finished work really does hang on the strength and the integrity of the rough work. So when the pastor does the rough work and then hires a tile guy to come and do the tile work, you get a lot of interesting conversation going on. Like, man, who did your rough work? You should have called me sooner. I give me a business card of a guy who can do it next time. But this morning from Hebrews 13, we're going to focus our time on a passage of Scripture which I just read dealing with the finished work of the gospel. Hebrews 13 is the final chapter of this great letter of Hebrews. And it begins with this string of commands meant to describe the finished work of Christianity. Maybe we could say the brilliance and the beauty of the Christian community. But this finished work is deeply dependent upon the rough work of the previous 12 chapters. This rough work being the person and work of Jesus. The author has made clear since chapter 1 that Jesus, who he is and what he has accomplished. He says that Jesus is the the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Jesus is the, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the supreme one. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the culmination of all God's redemptive purposes. Jesus is God's Son, who provides a better hope, a better covenant, founded on better promises. Jesus is the better sacrifice, guaranteeing a far better inheritance. Jesus is the best God could send, and the best He could give. And His person and His work provides the the framing and the rough work of the Christian faith. And we, the church, the New Covenant community, are called to be the finished work. We are to live in such a way to display the the beauty and the brilliance of God's finished work, the church of Jesus Christ. So our text before us this morning is a very important transitional text in the book of Hebrews. Um, We move from really behind the walls, if I can keep going with that analogy, from the theological framing and structure of of the new covenant to the finished work and what it looks like to live as God's people. And here's what it teaches us. It teaches us that as new covenant believers, we are to be a community of love, of purity, and contentment, but in response to the person and work of Jesus. So we are to be, as as the believers, as, as the church, we are to be a community of love, of purity, and of contentment in response to the person and work of Jesus. Now you heard me read the text this morning, and you the the words they're direct and clear, very to the point. And the brevity of the, of the author's language is meant to strike the ear with force. And again, I, I cannot stress enough the importance of their placement here in chapter 13 of the book. Right? The Christian life requires and demands a certain way of living. However, the way of life we are called to comes as a response to what God has already done for us in Christ. So we don't do these things in the text this morning to gain Christ. Right? Obedience to, the, to these string of commands before us is not what makes us Christians. It's what demonstrates that we are Christians. That we are, in fact, part of the New Covenant community. The finished work of the New Covenant community is before us. So, a few questions maybe before we jump into the text. Del Cero, when people in our community come into contact with you as a body, what should they see? What should they experience? When they come into contact with Del Cerro Baptist Church or the Hill, what should they experience? What should they see? What they see and experience should speak to the clarity and power of Christ. 
whom our community is to be built upon. And that's what's being described before us this morning. And for that to be true, we must first endure in love. That'll be my first point this morning. I'm going to give, in kind of in, in, in similar fashion as the text, I'm going to give some brief headings to move through the text quickly just as the author does. So first, in verse 1, we see that we are to endure in love. We begin, very importantly, with a call to love. And this first command to love really functions as, uh, as maybe we could say, the, the organizing theme for all that follows. It's really an umbrella theme here. It really sets the tone or the, the theme of this entire text. And this command to love is foundational for what follows really the entirety of the Christian life. At the heart of the Christian life is love. Because the heart of our God is love. The two great love passages in the Bible are John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And, for, and, and by this we know that he laid down his life for us. What? That we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the Bible is clear. Our love for one another makes a statement regarding the depth of our knowledge and our understanding of God's love towards us. So church, how did God love us? He gave his very son for us. Sinners undeserving of his love. He laid down his life in love. Therefore, we are to lay our lives down for one another. We are to love one another. So this initial call in Hebrews is something we find everywhere in our Bibles. But here there is the added emphasis, reflective of really the book of Hebrews' primary exhortation to persevere. It says, let brotherly love continue, is the call. Literally, in love or endure in love, or literally preserve in love. And it's described as brotherly love. It's where we get our word Philadelphia from. Love of brother. So the call is for us, the church, to continue loving one another as if we come from the same womb. That's what's being communicated here. And the theological foundation for this has already been laid. Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 10 through 18, the author made clear that those who respond to God's word are God's children, whom the Son purchased as his very brothers and sisters. We are members of the household of God, he said, and we're fellow heirs with Jesus, our elder brother and our great high priest. So the theological concept of Christian love being love of family or brotherly love is nothing new here. In fact, it's assumed by the author up until this point in the, when we get to this point in the letter. But what's not assumed is that we're living this truth out. We are to keep loving one another, endure in our covenant love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. For we share in the same birth, church. We come from the same womb, spiritually speaking. Why would the author say this? Because there's people in his church, like me and like you, who aren't always easy to love. But our commitment to a specific group of people in living out our faith together is essential for the Christian life, both corporately and individually. We sometimes assume that we can grow as believers like modern-day monks or something, right? that our, our sanctification will happen in isolation from other people. But how do, how do you think we're going we're gonna to go on learning how to persevere in love until we what? Go through some difficult stuff together which tries to tear us apart, but then we keep on loving one another, and yet we persevere. If we only love when people seem lovely to us, then we won't be together very long, right? 
And we will never have any sort of meaningful relationships built on the gospel. God's never looked at us one time in our sin and said, you're worthy of my love. But he's loved us and his son. So keep loving, church. Let brotherly love continue. Our churches, by God's grace, are to be marked by a persevering love. And that won't happen if we don't see each other rightly as family in the gospel. So to preserve, to preserve in brotherly love for one another demands we put the interests of others before ourselves. It demands we remain committed to the well-being of one another. It requires us seeing difficulty and difficult moments as opportunities for humility, which can actually lead to deeper intimacy rather than pride leading to division. Most months I do meet with your pastors over lunch. We talk ministry and we pray for one another. And I'm always encouraged by what I hear about God doing in their lives and in the life of this church. Dustin and I arrived in San Diego really months apart. Um, and we quickly struck up a friendship. He reached out to me. We had coffee at the Starbucks, actually right across the street from my church, and became friends. So we've been a part of each other's really stories of our churches, um, both the growth and the struggles over the, over the years. And what I know to be true of Dustin and the rest of your pastors is that they love you. They love this body. They love serving here together. It's a joy for them to do so, and they're always speaking of it. And they, as well as you, have very, uh, a lot to be thankful for in the way that God has blessed this church. And your gratitude, my gratitude to my church, is to be expressed towards God by committing all the more to one another. To let brotherly love continue, to persevere, to endure in love, church. Secondly, we need to welcome a stranger. Welcome the stranger. So he says here, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, in our English translation, the phrase to strangers is added for meaning, but in the original, it's just one, one word meaning uh, love of strangers. In fact, the literal translation reads, brotherly love continue, hospitality do not neglect or do not forget. The call of the Christian life is really laid out pretty clear here in this distinction, right? We are to endure in love for one another, and we are to show hospitality to the stranger. One of the purest expressions of Christian love comes through this idea of showing hospitality. Hospitality is a, it's a big deal in the Bible. And sadly, it's one place that I think often gets overlooked. Hospitality does bring us to the very heart of the gospel as well. Hospitality is not about entertaining people. It's about serving people. It's not about just trying to impress. It's about kind of coming underneath people, is the imagery of the word here. The early church was known for this hospitality particularly in the area of maybe traveling Christians, giving them board and room and board and letting them stay as they pass through town to town preaching the gospel. This was a distinct mark of the early church, and it's actually, in fact, a qualification for a pastor. Did you know that? Right? Paul tells us for an overseer, an elder, a pastor, as God's stewards, must, uh, they, they must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. How often do you think of hospitality in regards to the qualification for a pastor? How much more do you think about it within the body of Christ? When we speak of hospitality, we have to begin with God, who himself is the embodiment of hospitality. We could go all over the Bible here, but if we even begin in the creation narrative, we see how God not only created man and woman, 
but he served them by providing them everything they needed to flourish. Think about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. It was by the hospitable hand of God that they received manna from heaven daily. We read of that in Deuteronomy 8 this morning. God set their very feet upon the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But from the Garden of Eden to Israel and to each one of our lives, rebellion has been our response to God's grace. We sin. We turn our backs from the Holy Creator. And what's His response to us? An even greater outpouring of hospitality in His Son. He sent Christ, the full and final embodiment of hospitality. Christ ate with sinners, Mark 2. Christ received little children, Mark 9. He invited the lowly at parties and instructed us to do the same, Luke 14. He welcomed strangers, Matthew 25. He prepared breakfast for his disciples, John 21. And he ate with them following his resurrection, Luke 24. He tells us that he is going to prepare a place for us, John 14. Jesus institutes the Last Supper as a foretaste of the meal to come, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. But we have a seat at the table as believers. Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another, what? As Christ welcomed you. How did Christ welcome us? Hospitality speaks to stranger love, brothers and sisters. It speaks to a table. It's the idea of receiving a seat at a table we don't deserve. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have been, we've been given. Christ has accomplished everything necessary for a seat at his table, one we don't deserve. Hospitality is at the heart of the gospel, and therefore it should be common in the body of Christ. And the author really tacks on a motivation for showing hospitality we should not overlook in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. This very well may be a reference to Abraham and Sarah from Genesis 18, who in fact showed hospitality to angels, to angels unknowingly. I'm going to let Pastor Dustin deal with that difficult text in a few weeks. But I actually heard Dustin dealt with, with Genesis chapter 6 last week. Is that right? That's a very difficult text. You ought to be thankful that you have a pastor who's willing to preach the whole counsel of God's word and not shy away from passages like that. I haven't preached that one yet. But I think the point here at the very least is showing that hospitality is it's guaranteed to bring unexpected benefits. As you live out the power of the gospel. 1 Peter 4, the apostle adds an important qualifier. He says, show hospitality to one another. Here's that hard part. Without grumbling. Don't murmur. Don't complain. Don't slam the dishes around. Don't be like the children of Israel. For service with grumbling is not hospitality. Hospitality comes from a grateful and gracious heart. Hospitality takes time. As I tell our church, hospitality costs money. Hospitality interrupts our privacy. Hospitality takes work to prepare and to clean up, and yet all of it, understood rightly, is an opportunity to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way he served us. This makes me think of two dear sisters in my church, both single at this stage of life. Both use their homes as resources for the kingdom. Both are full every week for Bible study. Both have had people from our church live with them. One does currently right now. Her home is full of members and often strangers who are on the average 35 to 40 years younger than her. But she chooses to use her home as a table, as a display of the gospel. There are people who are now currently members of the Hill Church because they were welcomed 
to a physical table to share a physical meal in this lady's home, which gave rise to the opportunity for them to receive spiritual food and come to know the Lord Jesus and be brought into the family of God. This is what happens when we practice hospitality as a reflection of how we have been treated by our Savior. So thirdly, care for the forgotten. Verse 3 contains another pair of exhortations specifically aimed at believers being persecuted for their faith. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. As you're familiar with by now, the, the context of which the author writes is a difficult one for this church. If you've studied Hebrews at all, you know that. But suffering and persecution for their faith was a real thing. And this includes both imprisonment, we see it multiple places in the letter, and mistreatment. And the tendency in any culture, but especially in this culture, and many around the world today, is to forget those who are in prison. Write them off. They're gone. But notice how the author grounds this exhortation. It says, remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. He's saying, our union with Christ And other brothers and sisters establishes our union with God's people. And secondly, we are to remember those mistreated or being tortured since you also are in the body. We are part of the same family, he's saying. We don't forget family. And remember, he speaks to to more than just a, uh, this, this remember here speaks to more than just a conscious awareness, like just remember them on certain occasions. No, it's, it's remembering that leads to action. It's remembering that enters into the situation, the suffering of the person. It's remembering as the way God remembered his people in the story of Exodus. He heard their cry. He remembered and he responded. We must remember how Christ became human and took on a body to identify with our vulnerability, our our weakness, and redeem us from our suffering. Statistics tell us that one out of nine believers around the world experience high levels of persecution for their faith. Tells us that four to five thousand believers are killed for their faith each year. Twenty five hundred believers are estimated to be in prison for their faith. Probably way more than that. The whole point usually is to make sure these people are forgotten. Most of those will never stay in trial. They'll die in prison. The intent for most is that they will be forgotten. And we must obey this command. We must obey this command by praying for believers. By strengthening believers all around the globe, it's a joy to hear your pastor doing that right now. And we remember that by supporting missionary efforts to unreached places of the world where this happens so much. This is one of the joys of partnering with the Pillar Network, with this church. Our church is about the same size as yours. We're small churches. But God can use our churches together to do things we can't do apart. We can come together and partner together and share resources and send people around the world together to plant churches. That's the aim. That's the prayer. That's what me and the pastors of this church are praying about. How can we do that together in the future? Wouldn't that be exciting? To see the hill and Del Cerro partnering together and seeing a church planted somewhere around the globe and the gospel going forth, the rich teaching and the gospel ministry that you experience here and that we experience, we can see it somewhere together. That's how we obey this command. By continuing to help plant healthy churches in unreached places of the world. He gives us another mark here. He says, honor marriage in verse 4. The author's approach shifts slightly in verses 4 to 6. Where he's, he has provided straightforward direct commands in verses 1 to 3. Which directly flow out of love. Our, our love is to endure. It's to show hospitality. Remember our suffering brothers and sisters who are not forgotten But now in verses 4 and 5, we have two additional sets of exhortations 
which warn against sexual infidelity and greed. Two types of conduct which violate and destroy Christian community and destroy Christian love. The first, he says, is let, let, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And this call to honor marriage is given to everyone. He says to all. It's to be honored among all in the body of Christ. And the dishonoring of marriage can happen in a few different ways. The primary way is spelled out clearly in this text. It has to do with sexual infidelity. We honor marriage by keeping the marriage bed undefiled. The word undefiled uh, contains the thought of purity. Defilement is in fact the opposite of holiness. Marriage is the one flesh union between one man and one woman as the Bible makes crystal clear. And the breaking of this union by illegitimate sexual activity is the distortion of the very definition of marriage itself. It is the defilement of what God has deemed right, pure, and holy. And this is being attacked and assaulted in our culture today. You cannot turn the television on without seeing a commercial that attacks the sacredness of marriage. Deliberately, willfully, and intentionally. And while we should mourn this, especially as parents with young children, we should not be surprised by this. Or I think become overly fearful about this. We have a lot of young families in our church and it's obviously a topic of discussion a lot and oftentimes what I hear coming out is a fearful posture a lot but this is because this has always been the case the ethic of Christian marriage has always been a radical thing in a culture in the culture of Hebrews it was common for men to have a wife yes who bore their children and then many other acceptable sexual relationships some of which fit most of our commercials today Marriage has always been under assault by the culture, and the reason for this is clear. Human marriage gets at the heart of the gospel, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. Human marriage, the one flesh commitment or union of one man, one woman, uh, for life is is a depiction of the gospel. It testifies to the commitment, to the forgiveness, to the self sacrifice, and the unconditional nature of God's covenant love towards his people and his son. God has chosen to commit himself to us in a covenant relationship through Jesus. He is willing to lay down his life, making the ultimate sacrifice that we might know and experience true covenant love. So there has always been and will always be a need for Christians to honor marriage and keep it undefiled. So how do we combat it? I worked in the kind of the grocery wholesale business for Multiple years before I became a pastor, it was a family-owned business, but think like Costco. So it was a lot of fast turning over, um, businesses come in, restaurants, um, different places. A lot of cash was turned over every day, and part of my role was managing the front end with our cashiers. They saw a lot of cash. So they had to be up on the counterfeiting techniques. So we had to do the lights, we had to do the markers, we had to do all of these things, right? And I was actually doing this, managing the time when we went to the new $100 bill. Some of you remember that. And we learned that while all those things are helpful, the light, the marker, all those things are helpful, the most helpful way to help our cashier spot a counterfeit was to literally get them in a room with new $100 bills, lay them all on the table, and say, put your hands on them. Feel them, touch them, pull them apart, count them. 
And the reality was the more they become familiar with the real thing, the easier it was to spot a counterfeit. That's our call, church. That's how we combat the danger, the assault upon marriage today. The number one way we protect our children from the toxicity of our culture is to give them a portrait of the real thing, exposing the counterfeit that they are sure to be inundated with. This goes well beyond just married couples. Singles are called called to honor marriage here as well. And singles honor marriage by remaining pure and undefiled in their singleness, just as a husband and wife are called to do. And couples, we... Uh, and, and couples, marriage couples, we honor marriage by recognizing marriage as a gift alongside the gift of singleness, as Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 7. We honor marriage by recognizing and encouraging our singles in the body of Christ, which goes well beyond trying to get them all married. We call them to purity, faithfulness. We call them to use their singleness for the glory of Christ and His church to use their time, their availability, their specific perspective in their singleness to strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. We miss out on this so much as the church. One of the dangers of marriage is going into it believing your spouse will ultimately fulfill you. On the honeymoon, that may seem to be the case. First few months of marriage, that may seem to be the case. But give it a few months. Have a baby. Let that baby become a toddler. Something quickly changes. You know quickly that though you love your spouse and cherish your spouse, you recognize quickly your spouse cannot fulfill you, ultimately. Only Jesus can do that. And church, that truth, the sufficiency of Jesus, is the truth our singles have to wrestle with every day. And when I say single, I, just, I don't mean just young people. I'm blessed at the hill to pastor a, like this church, a Diverse group of people from differing ages and backgrounds. Singles include young, but they also include old widows, older widows, middle-aged. In fact, every married person will most likely become single again as one spouse goes to glory before the other. So church, every one of us is called to honor marriage in in, in the church. And we do this by, by knowing that it may be likely Soon, that obeying verse 4, honor marriage, may result in us being part of verse 3, those in prison or mistreated. But we stand where the people of God have always stood. We stand on the gospel. We stand on the truth of God's word, which defines marriage as the covenant commitment between a man and a woman. We honor the marriage bed. We seek purity as the people of God. We honor marriage. And lastly, we remain content. Verse 5, the issue of greed is addressed, which if you pay attention in your Bible, it almost always accompanies sexual immorality in the Bible. You always find those together. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, let me just ask you, aren't these two, sex and greed, particularly a greed for love for money or what... uh, Aren't they what characterize our culture today? They're celebrated as virtuous. Right? Where, the, where biblical love acts for the betterment of others, worldly love, counterfeit love, acts for the advantage of self. Seeking people as commodities, 
either for sex or financial gain. And we should notice it, it does not say keep your life free from money. Money is not the issue per se. It's the love or greed for money that is. To some God gives much and some he gives less. The issue is not what you have, but it's how you view what you have. Be content with what you have is the call. Contentment is an essential component to living as God's people, but sadly, I don't think most people experience it. We do live in a world characterized by discontentment, and often we have churches full of discontent people. What is contentment? In our culture, contentment is defined as self-sufficiency. You listen. It's how you most often hear it. It's it's self-sustaining. It's self-reliance. Yet biblically, it's something much different. As one author says, biblical contentment is not self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency. That's exactly the author's point here. Be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are wealthy beyond measure in the things that really matter. A non-believing billionaire is a beggar in comparison to the financially struggling believer in terms of the kingdom. We have God and His promise, perpetual presence in our lives. Learning to rest in that truth is where true contentment is found. And discontentment is a danger for those who have much as well as it is for those who have little. We have little, we tend to covet what others have. Feel ill about those who have more. And when we have more, we tend to be ungrateful for what we have. We tend to spend all of our time protecting what we have, trying to ensure that we keep what we have and get more of it. Both can be sinful. Both forfeit the gospel by believing our identity is defined by what we do or do not have financially. As believers, we must be content in the fact that we are rich in Christ. And yet we know from our brother Paul in Philippians 4 that what? Contentment must be learned, he said. Paul spoke of learning the secret of contentment. How was it learned for Paul? It was learned through hardship. It was learned through lack. It was learned through a life of surrender. Through success and failure, ups and downs, lack and plenty, imprisonment, hardship, trials, chains. Paul had learned, he said, that Christ is enough. Contentment is found in the fact that Jesus is enough. You believe that, Christian? Are you content in Christ in any situation? Do you see Him, the Lord Jesus, as the all-surpassing worth? In a culture driven by the love of money, Our contentment in Jesus in whatever financial situation we find ourselves speaks to the sufficiency of our Savior. It speaks to the fact that He is enough in a world that cannot get enough. It speaks to the fact that our riches and security are found in Jesus and Him alone. Biblical contentment is believing and embracing the reality that Jesus Christ is enough for me. As a new covenant community, we are the finished work of the gospel. Del Cerro, You are the finished work of the gospel. You are called to display the brilliance and beauty of the person and work of Jesus through your lives. You are to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That'd be a really good name for a church. Really good verse, theme verse for a church. 
You are to be a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's the call of this passage. But this call comes out of all that God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus. I want to reiterate it again this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out the Christian life, what this passage is not saying is that by trying to keep these commands, that's how you become a Christian, right? Like loving people, serving people, helping the forgotten, honoring marriage, and not loving money is how you become a Christian. That's not what's being said here at all. It is how we live now that we are Christians. It's what we do because we know Christ as King. We cannot mix up the rough work and the finished work of the gospel. It'd be like coming to an empty lot where a house is going to be built and showing up with some, with some mud and the tile and saying you're going to start building the house. It makes no sense at all. No, we do in the Christian life. Everything that we do in the Christian life, all the finished work is built on what God has done for us in Jesus. Every command given in, this, in these six verses is loaded with the theological content and thrust of all that's come before it. So we endure in love. Why? Because He endured in love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In love, He endured the cross, despising the shame that we deserve, that we might be reconciled to God. We show hospitality because we know what it's like because of our sin, to be a stranger to God and yet be invited to His table through the work of His Son. We know that we have a place in the kingdom, not because of any merit of our own, because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember those who are forgotten because had it not been for Christ, we would all be forgotten. We honor marriage because we are the bride of Christ who has been purchased by His redeeming blood. We keep our lives, our lives free from the love of money because we are rich in the Lord Jesus. He is where our contentment is found. He will never leave us nor forsake us, church. I'll leave you today with the exhortation to be beautiful, to be the brilliance, the finished work of the gospel. But you can't do that if you're not resting on the rough work of Christ. See Christ, church. Keep Him at the center, what He's done for you. and Be the beautiful body of Christ that He's called you to be in this city. We love to do ministry side by side with you, and we want to continue. Father, we do love you. We do thank you for this opportunity. I, I thank you for the, the sweetness of standing before the saints and opening your word. And I thank you for this church. Thank you for their leadership. Thank you for their legacy. Thank you for the years of faithfulness that marks this church. I thank you for new people who've come over the last year, two years, three years, who don't know much about the legacy of this church and this community. God, we pray by your kindness and through the riches of the gospel, you would continue to fit all of these stories together to write the story of Jesus in our neighborhood. God, I pray you would help this church, help my church persevere in love. God, that's easy to do when I find someone lovely. But when 
Somebody does something I don't like. That's when I have to ask the question, how am I going to respond? Out of the flesh or out of the gospel? God, I pray this church will be marked by a gospel response to keep on loving one another with brotherly love. Help them to remain pure. Help them to show hospitality. Help them to find their contentment in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray it would multiply in our lives even today. In Jesus' name, amen.